You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. We're all here mm -hmm. in the Grotto Pod. Who's here in the Grotto Pod? Bridget Thank Quinn you. is with me. <gasps> I in spoke the over pod. you it's twice. Right. It's what we do. I know. Bridget Quinn is here. I am Larry Rosen. I am here. Uh, soon we will be joined by a guest. Catherine Osmond. With a K. Yep. Author of? Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. Oh, man, this is some heavy stuff. That's a long subtitle, and I know about long subtitles. And uh, we are going to delve into the ideas behind this book, which are, as I just said, pretty heavy stuff. What do you got there in your hand there? I've got my notes because okay. I'm a pro. Because you're a pro. My notes are right here. Um, I, the reason Larry asked is because I'm holding it into the air because there is no, no room. room anywhere else. It's a little bit like human Tetris in here. Yep. But we're going to overcome that and we're going to talk about some serious subjects today. Namely, if it's possible to find, not, uh, to find morality, uh, community, ritual, all the things that people get have normally gotten from religion – in a secular world, as a non-religious person. I think generally we can agree that we can find morality, right? Yeah. Well, theoretically, I think you and I believe that. I, I, I believe that. there are many people who believe that. But one of the more compelling questions for me in reading it was, well, then in terms of, say, raising children, tradition, mm. uh, community, et cetera, et cetera, where, what, what are those? How do you find them? Are, do they already exist? And also, I had really interesting questions come up for me about what is religion? What mm. makes something a religion? You know how like things can be culty, like surfing can be really culty, yeah. And it can be kind of your religion, yeah. And you can get really spiritual about it, yeah. And so, what makes it not a religion? Uh, you know, and and that's sort of that sort of piggybacks on this idea that atheism is a religion. Well, and that was uh, an interesting part of the book is. How atheism, or at least I should say non-believers, which I'll let Catherine talk about more, have become a bigger and bigger demographic in America, which has really clung to religion more than any other part of the industrialized world. Maybe not any other part, but mm -hmm. certainly probably the biggest country to mm -hmm. be so religiously virile. Virile. I guess. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, sure, that, oh yeah, yeah, about atheists. But but I was thinking like, well, what makes you decide you're going to call yourself an atheist? Like, right, there's a I difference gotta, between those two things. It, 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 there's a difference between running around feeling um, ambivalent. Or just don't care. Like it doesn't come up for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, and being stridently something. Being atheist, which right, which you know, is in a way group. can be as dogmatic as anything. Oh my gosh, those like Christopher Hitchens um, debates. When I watch them, I'm like, my God, he's as he's like an evangelical atheist. Yeah, he was evangelical in his atheism. Yeah, which is wild. I just can't imagine caring that much, but I guess maybe you do. I guess you. So, yeah. So as you can see, uh, listeners or listener, depending on how many of you are out there, yeah, uh, we could easily go down this rabbit hole ourselves and talk about it for an hour. Uh, but instead, we got uh, Catherine Osment coming in here. And let me give you some of her bona fides. Yeah. She's not just someone who decided to write a book because her kids saw a Greek Orthodox Church and said, what are we? Though we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. She is a 25-year uh, journalist, former senior editor at National Geographic, has written for the New York Times, Salon, Fitness, and Boston Magazine, mm -hmm. where she was conveniently located because her husband is an academic working at MIT at the time. How fun. Yeah. I would like to live in Boston. Uh, I lived there for a while. Did you like it? Uh, it was hard to tell. I was young. Huh. Hmm. Um, right now they live in Chicago, but she's out here for the summer. 
Uh, they're at Berkeley. They're at Berkeley for mm-hmm. the summer. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind getting in a little bit about her journalistic career because apparently it was pretty hardcore. Like she was one of those go to the Middle East type of journalists. Yeah, like the real deal. Which would be interesting. Unlike us. <laughs> yeah. Which would be interesting to see how that <laughs> informed Oh yeah, her search and her understanding of religion and religious origins and religious literacy, which is something I was discussing with uh, fellow Grottoite Laura Fraser, who mm. edited this book. I know that's very cool. I had not realized that. Until I didn't you know guys, that either. I overheard yeah. you guys talking. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, she Catherine was born in Arkansas and raised by religious Presbyterian or, by parents who'd been raised by very religious parents, and. One of the things she points out is that as America's youth, each generation is less and less religious. Mm -hmm. So her parents sort of fell away from religion, even though her father went to divinity school. Mm -hmm. And then she was kind of raised with very little or kind of in and out religion. And she's not really passing religion on to her kids. It'll be interesting to see that. And I'll let her cite all the stats that point to the uh, growth of secularity. Is that a word? Probably. Secularity in the U.S. Secularism? Secularism in the U.S. Um, Someone texted me today and said they were nervous texting me because of grammar. And I thought that was so funny. Oh, that's nice. I, I guess. I just, I'm like the worst grammatically. But you might, you ugh, could probably exploit person. that for your own Maybe. gain. Yeah. If you're a worse person. Fortunately, you're religious. <laughs> Kidding. You know, it might be time to go get Catherine Osment. She's just sitting there in the lunchroom. Yeah. Not knowing that lunch here doesn't start for another uh, what minute. What time is it? Oh, yeah, 12.45 it starts. So let's get her out of there before people it's get It's 12.45. Yeah, okay. and, and she won't be able to talk to us. So go get her. I'm going. Catherine Osment, uh, first question for you. Did we get you in time, or did we have to tear you away from lunch-eating grottoites? Curious to hear about your book. Oh, well, I I traded cards with some lunch-eating grottoites, okay. and so we're going to get back in touch after lunch. That's the awesome thing about the grotto. It's really, it was a, kind of amazing. It was someone I wanted to see. Oh. And she sat down next Who to was me it? just now. Do um, tell. Now I don't know her name. Oh, but, um, geez, I'm sorry. But it, I don't mean to put you on the spot like yeah, that. But it was someone um, I was looking for. It's so. the great thing about the grotto, and the bad thing about the grotto pod is that the grotto pod is always scheduled to start at 1 p.m., during lunch. Mm. So we need to think about it. If people come in here... I know. They want to have lunch. That would be sort of... Make it be a whole package deal. You know why it started at 1 o'clock was because I had to sometimes pick up my daughter from the bus oh. at... I can't remember, 320 or something like that. And that got me there in time. So we can now move it because it's a whole new world. Sweet. We can do it. Yeah. It's all about me, Larry. <clears throat> also, a little known fact about Catherine Osment. She's very destructive. She came in here and just tore apart the mic stand. <laughs> <laughs> and and tearing down institutions. Right. Tearing down institutions. Tearing down the mic <laughs> stand. Powerful. Lacks that religious core that would prevent her from doing a thing like this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's... Uh, Let's drop my notes and let's dive right in, Catherine. So I know you've you've told this story a million times, but I tell it again. I'm going to make you do it a million and one, and you can you can you know uh, readers digest it as much as you want. Just the genesis of the book, and actually, if you could, uh, I had suggested during the intro that your career as a journalist. I know you traveled to the Middle East and reported. If that informed this at all in any way, mm-hmm. sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with the story and then talk a little bit about the approach to the book. Um, many years ago, this book sort of started with this this moment with my son, who was about eight at the time. We were living near Boston, and we lived across the street from a Greek Orthodox church, which I didn't really notice all that much. But this one night in particular, my son called me to the window. It was probably around 9, nine or 10 at night. It was a Friday 
and he said, Mama, come look at this. And I, I raced over to the window wondering, you know, what was happening outside on our city street. And there were all these people um, holding candles coming up the street toward our house. Uh, and it was this very solemn, quiet ceremony. No one was talking. They had a chariot-like thing covered in flowers. There was a priest. Clearly, the congregation had come out and was doing this procession. And my son said to me, um, well, what are they doing? And I thought, you know, I kind of racked my brain. And I said, well, I guess it must be Good Friday. Um, and maybe this is what they do. I knew Easter was coming up. And he said, well, why don't we do that? Then I said, we're not Greek Orthodox. You know, he wasn't really answering his question, obviously. (laughs) Um, And he didn't buy it. He said, well, what are we? And I paused and I really didn't know what to say. Um, And I just, you know, in the next breath blurted out, we're nothing. Well, so now up to this point, and I know your husband is Jewish or was raised Jewish. Raised that way. What holidays were you celebrating and how were you celebrating them? You know, we were just really um, celebrating Christmas in the most grossly commercial... I.e. Uh, the American way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were the American Christmas people. Occasionally, we'd get together with friends to do maybe Seder or something, you know, from... His, so I was raised Presbyterian. He was raised Jewish. Um but it was all very passive and definitely our kids had never seen a religious ritual. But so at that moment, though, did you feel – now you say – I don't know to the extent you were raised Presbyterian. I know your your father was it was raised – yeah, my mom was super religious. Mm-hmm. My family is all from Arkansas, and my mom had you know hosted Bible study and went to Bob Jones University. Ozarks or Little Rock? Uh, Little Rock. Well, no, Camden, actually the opposite of the Ozarks, southwest corner, okay. tiny town. Um, and so my mother was raised very religiously. My father, not so much, but both from Arkansas. Um, and they drifted from it. So I was actually, they were starting to drift, you know, at, as they were raising me. But I was raised with some religion. I knew the Lord's Prayer and all that stuff. But I guess what, what I was driving at, though, is when you saw that, uh, and that's a question for everyone in the room, really, and you're not a part of it, but you have a memory of it, do you feel a sense of sadness and loss? Absolutely. And I write also about another scene in the book where I was coming out of a yoga class one Sunday morning and I was all sweaty and I was going to get my, you know, green juice. And I'm As waiting, I'm waiting for the, the walk sign and these church doors across the street burst open and I hear Jesus Christ has risen today, which is what mm-hmm. they play at the end of the Easter um, services. And I realized it was Easter. Easter. And everyone, the kids were dressed up, the parents, everyone was hugging and, and talking to the minister and shaking hands as they left. And I was like, geez, wow, what, how did I get here with mm-hmm. my yoga mat slung over my shoulder? And they're over there. And when did I get on this side of the street? I didn't it, interesting really that it was yoga, too, because yeah. for some people that can be their religion. Well, yeah. I think. I mean, a that's a real people. question for me, too. And, and it came up for me in the book, uh, especially around atheism. Like, what is a religion? I mean, I mm-hmm. think there is the question that you're going into pretty deeply, tra- creating tradition, creating community, all of those things. But really, what makes something a religion? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think it is a framework for living. But I, I do think if it's a religion, it's got to have some kind of God or supernatural belief involved in it. That's, okay, so atheism, even though they can seem so strident. Yeah. I think it's a philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it is sort of its own belief. So it's a belief and non-belief um, system. But sure, you can be a fundamentalist atheist. It seems like just it. as but you, well. Yeah. But you can't say the Grateful Dead is my religion. 
So yeah. I'll bet I could find a deadhead oh, yeah. who would insist. Right. Well, yoga is kind of what brought yeah. that up for me. I mean, yeah. yoga is ostensibly tied to Hinduism, but in America, is it really? Maybe it is for some people. I you think know? it I don't depends. Know. Well, I yeah. think that's the big thing that has cracked open, right? Yeah. Is that there are so many choices now and there are so many ways to define um, how we find meaning and ritual and community that it's almost overwhelming. And so whereas yeah. it used Choice. to be my mom went to this church and right. so did half the town and my dad mm-hmm. went to the church on the other half. There weren't a lot of choices. There wasn't a lot of wrestling with this. Well, right. And it's kind of, in a way, we were just joking earlier about OJ saying he was a good Christian. Right. And I said, well, that's a crutch. But it's more than a crutch. It's something really tangible to hang on to without having to do all this searching. All those people bursting out of that church on Easter, like, well, I know this part's taken care of. Right. And having that identity. And I think a lot of people I talked with, they sort of, they miss having an identity, a set clear right. thing. Mm-hmm. I am this. I believe that. This is what my community <laughs> believes. And yet it just doesn't feel authentic anymore. Right. And so I met one woman who had been left the Mormon church and she now describes herself as a um, agnostic with atheistic tendencies and a Buddhist <laughs> practice. I feel like I've met a lot of people like that in San Francisco, especially, which is a place where people are in one way open to spirituality, but in another way, very close to religion. Yes. Um, I sometimes, I told Larry this joke and say to people when they say that they're spiritual, but not religious, I say, oh, I'm religious, but not spiritual. Well, because I still identify as Catholic, even though, and that drives people crazy. But are you a lapsed Catholic or are you just a non-practicing Catholic? I am... I don't know. I feel it's, uh, you know what? It's, I'm scared to talk about it. It's like, it's like outing yourself. This is a safe space, And Bridget. I don't think it is a safe space. Um, I, I mean, uh, I am, oh, what do they call those? Cafeteria Catholic. Uh-huh. That's what Cafeteria I am. Cafeteria Catholic. <laughs> choose what I want. I mean, of course, there are things I find completely wrong and offensive mm-hmm. about the Catholic hierarchy, especially the patriarchy. Sorry. Um, and gay marriage, nuns not being priests, all of those things. And at the same time, as an Irish American, I do feel like it's my culture, and I do find a lot of beauty and meaning in the rituals mm-hmm. and the tradition. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's really a common experience, and the statistics that I go into in the book really bear that out. That. A lot of people, not only are some people leaving religion and God belief behind, but for those who still describe themselves as religious, they're just de-institutional. They're, they're decoupling from the institution, mm-hmm. but they maintain a lot of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of one of the big changes that you can look at across the country, really. And um, it's happening very quickly. I mean, the statistics mm-hmm. that you write about are re- pretty amazing. Well, and they've gone up since. So I, I the Pew study that I um, first cite in the book, and then I update him, uh, said that in 2012, 20% of the country was religiously unaffiliated and 33% of millennials. That's up from 5% where it had hovered forever. Now, when, but in uh, five years, that's gone up yeah. to 25% of yeah. the country when and you almost say, 40% of millennials. When you say religiously unaffiliated, is that... They claim no religion or they're not affiliated with any institution. So that's people who, when they're asked, how do you describe yourself? Are you mm-hmm. Jewish? Are you Baptist? Are you Mormon? Are you Catholic? They choose none of the above. And so these people mm-hmm. are colloquially called the nuns, nuns. N-O-N-E-S. Um, I love that you have to spell that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, not the Catholic nuns. <laughs> and so the nuns. those people are 
not affiliated. That doesn't mean they don't believe in God. This group includes atheists, agnostics, but also the spiritual but not religious. It can include lapsed or cafeteria Catholics if they just don't want to call themselves a Catholic. I just really want to emphasize that being a cafeteria Catholic does not mean you're lapsed in any way. There are major parts of the Catholic Church that are also opposed Mm -hmm. to those things. Mm -hmm. That's all I want to say. Because as we discussed before we met with you, as the Catholic and the Jew, we both think you can run but you can't hide. You can tell the whole world you're not Jewish or Catholic, but you kind of still are. Well, it's interesting because those two groups have a hard time because Mm -hmm. of the cultural element. And so they now, when they study Jews, they now look at religious Jews versus cultural Jews. That's interesting. And my husband is a cultural Jew, but he's not religious at all. But Judaism is so important to him as a cultural Jew. Are you a cultural or a secular Jew? You know, I'm not sure. I was going to use Eric, the guy guy I do my podcast, my Mm -hmm. other podcast. Are you deflecting? Yes. Uh, he is as Jewish as they come and an outspoken atheist. Right. And he still goes to services when he has to. But right. if you ask him, he will say, I am an atheist, but I am a Jew. Right. So it's a weird thing. But I want to get back to the, the, huh, genesis of, the genesis of the book itself. How do you go from, hmm, you know, th- at first it's, it's a parenting question, right? Yeah. Or it's a personal question. Right. How do you go from that to... Hey, you know what? This would make a good book. Right. <laughs> well, I was working at the time for Boston Magazine, so I pitched the article idea to my editor, which was Raising Kids Without Religion. Okay. So it started as a parenting. I was writing a series of parenting articles. And as I got into it, um, well, I wrote the article and I interviewed some really interesting people and I tried to, you know, sort of, it was in 4,000 words, do what I could. And I went to um, give a talk at an atheist group in Boston. And at the end of it, a guy raised his hand and he said, I get it. I left religion. My wife left religion. What I don't know is where should we go instead? Where are we going to raise our kids with the kind of communal bonds that I saw growing up with a place to escape sort of the commercial forces of the society that we live in and all that achievement that we're forcing on our kids and just the rat race of parenting today. And that's really when the book was born because I didn't have an answer for him. Where are those places that people can go? And I knew that I didn't have an answer for me. It wasn't any more about my son only. It was about really me and and everyone I knew. We were kind of searching for that that religion without religion. (laughs) (laughs) And and you're a journalist, so you're used to parsing stories Mm -hmm. and finding out what the story is. But at this point, was the driving force to follow the story or to figure it out for yourself? So it's really both. And in the, in the end, the structure of the book is really as a, a journey. It's a quest. It's a quest narrative. And it goes deeper. It starts with the sort of outside um, things like community and rituals. But then it digs into meaning and purpose. And if you don't believe in God or you're not sure there's a God, what are we all doing here? And what should we be doing with our lives? Um, and so it, it's, it really follows that quest, I think, um, structure. But, and it was sort of guided by my kids' questions and my own questions. But I didn't want it to be a memoir. Um, I felt like it, it was so much bigger than me. And it was a story that was very timely with these statistics coming out and so many changes happening that I wanted to weave that in and give it a bit more heft. Was that hard? I mean, do you think you would have been able to pull that off if you were not a trained journalist? It was yes, I think that was hard. I mean, no, I don't think I could have. It was it was hard. It was a lot of research, and in fact, and so many statistics. I mean, that's yeah. a lot to handle in a narrative. Yeah, and it's 
Yes. At some point, I realized I had to put tighter parameters around mm-hmm. it and go deeper because if I was going to do everything, I would still be researching right. the book right, right. now. It would be like that As, guy in uh, Middlemarch. And I just had that discussion with Laura Frazier, oh, yeah. your editor, about that. And she said, yeah, you were... At times, you had yeah. to be reined in because you wanted to study everything. Absolutely, and <laughs> That's it's, how I would be, yeah. yeah, and it's and, and it's kind of comforting in a way when you're dealing with big questions to be like, oh, I'm going to find some more facts. Yeah. Well, maybe you need to just reflect a little bit. Well, and this is really interesting to me because, yes, you're doggedly pursuing this as a journalist, but at the same time, you're trying to answer pretty big questions for yourself. And what and was your children? And your yeah. Yeah, 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 and your children, and as a parent, as a person, right. you know, what's the weight of that? How do you? Right. How do you not let that overwhelm you? It was hard, you know. And there's that saying about writing a novel. I've, I don't know. Maybe you guys know who said it. Which is, it's like driving in the fog at night. You can only see three feet in front of you, but you'll you'll make it. It's but, El Doctoro. Okay, so nice. but I would lie in bed at night awake, thinking, or I could drive into a lake and drown, mm-hmm. like I or hit a tree. Yeah. Like I really didn't think I could get. I didn't know I could ever answer the questions, mm-hmm. and I think at some point I realized that's the point. So you didn't go yes. into it. That's very smart. Yeah. So you didn't go there hoping that at the end there'd be clarity that you could carry forward. Well, I I guess I wanted an answer. I think mm-hmm. that was the problem, and I think not. I started out as someone who just wasn't facing the questions. I was like, when my son asked me, I was like, well, we're nothing. I'm go to bed. <laughs> you know, let's not talk about these things. There's my some kids, Easter eggs. They would say, yeah. you know, my kids would say, what happens when we die? I'd be like, nothing. Go, you know, go brush your teeth. And at, at some point, so throughout this process of three years of writing the book, I was facing those questions constantly. And I think by the end, um, I realized, well, I'm, I'm not going to come up with a new religion on my own, um, but I'm going to learn to be in this space and, and that I'm surrounded by other people who are experiencing the same so thing. Yeah. And it made me feel better. Well, I'm interested that thought came up. Mm. that you would invent a new religion. Well, just an answer. I, I think a lot of people are looking for, this is it. We're going to you know, do I this I wonder instead. if this is in some ways a specifically American question mm-hmm. because one of the statistics in your book, um, because I lived in Norway when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. is that Norway is 72% secular. And that was something that struck me so much coming from a super religious mm-hmm. family and a super religious community to go someplace where people weren't, no, they weren't anti-religion. It was not even on people's radar yes. for but, the most part, not entirely. But you've spent time in the Middle East. Right. How is that different from what you see here? Well, well you know, I mean, and I, yes, when I worked at National Geographic, I went on assignment for a month and I was researching. It was a different type of story. It was the Copper Age and we were doing a, a donkey trek through the desert to recreate an ancient copper route, which is kind of cool. cool. As one does. Yes. Because yes, <laughs> it's National Geographic, so they don't want to just write about it. They want to recreate it and ride donkeys for two weeks. Um, but I remember, and this was a long time ago, but it's all rooted in the same questions. I remember that the, the um, Israeli archaeologists we were traveling with asking, what are you? Mm-hmm. you know, where, what's your name? Because it's, it's important to Yeah, them. and I was like, you know, I don't know. I'm the bubble-headed American. And, <laughs> and they were just horrified. Yeah. And that was a real taste of, of an extreme feeling of that, wow, I don't know where I'm rooted. I don't right. know where my roots are don't from. don't know how to define yourself. Right. It's a very easy way to define yourself. So in a way, the Middle East and Scandinavia are sort of two poles Mm -hmm. of that, right? Where you're so rooted in tradition, which means religion, or where religion has really become very, very much a backdrop, maybe Mm -hmm. even less than that in Scandinavia. And in America, we have the choice to choose between those two poles. 
and that makes it kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. But when you were doing your research, what value when we're talking about religion and, and it, it seems like in the book, you know, you're looking for ways to fill in those blanks without God, right? To get mm-hmm. the community and mm-hmm. to get the ritual and to get that feeling of belonging. But when you were doing your research, you know, what was the value of actual faith? And how do you, is that replaceable? Mm-hmm. Do you mean belief in God or faith? Belief in, in I guess, belief in something that strong. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't consider myself a man of faith. Mm-hmm. But at times I'm a little jealous of people who are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that... That for me was the big question was how do you, and I, there was this really interesting research in it. It's a little bit about what you're talking about, about religious versus non-religious societies, about when monotheistic gods came into play was when societies became um, these big agricultural societies and you needed someone to, you needed a, a moral framework to control people's behavior, basically, because you didn't know your neighbors anymore, mm-hmm. and you couldn't control them in that way through gossip and things. So there's this watchful God who comes into the picture, and suddenly you you realize, I can't steal from my neighbor because God is watching. And so there's this whole, and then you develop this this love and the worship and the whole you know, religions are these really elaborate um, operations of all the different ways they get people to bind together. And so I think what I was first looking at was that binding power of religion. But then, and this isn't really, you know, I think you you can search this in like a, a Buddhist approach or Zen too, but what is the thing that you believe in be- beneath that? Like mm-hmm. what's bringing those people together? And God is very motivating. And so how can my life be galvanized if I don't have that belief? Right. This idea mm-hmm. that no matter how much you manage to replace the everyday benefits of religion, mm-hmm. people who are truly religious have the big answers. You know, the big questions in their mind are answered. Right. But people do replace them. I mentioned surfing when we were talking before mm-hmm. you came in. You know, we all know people who are passionate about something and they invest in those things it can be pop culture. It can be an adventure. I mean, you tweeted today about uh, Harry Potter as a sacred text. Yes. If you could speak about that a little bit, I'd love to hear yeah. it. Um, there is that, too, where people are finding community and deep meaning in things that aren't really religious. Yeah. But they are. There is some ineffable spiritualness about mm-hmm. them, I think. But, but Harry Potter's not going to tell you what happens when you die. <laughs> it does. Well, I it think does. doesn't it? I, well, I have I not listened it. to the. There's well, they a come pod, back. There's a podcast, and they they examine Harry Potter as a sacred text. And do they compare it to popular. religions, though? To existing religions? Well, what's the word? With sacred text must mean religion, mm-hmm. kind of. They use sacred. religious oh, approaches yeah. to examining the text, and yeah. then they pick it apart, and they look at. They'll take one sentence, and they'll dive into it, and use oh, it as boy. a way a to think about of how to live <laughs> your life. You Sometimes know? a snake is just a snake. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but okay, this is the thing about the written word, because you can be religious about that. And in a way, I feel like a tiny bit, your book is religious about literature Ooh. or art Ooh. or writing. Yeah. It starts with a poem by Charles Simic. Yeah. It ends with a quote from To the Lighthouse. Yeah. There is a way in which things like art and literature can carry their own deep meaning and code for living, I think. True. Mm-hmm. Let me ask both of you something, though. And this is a little off, not off topic, but... Uh, so when I was growing up, there were... You would call them fundamentalists. Now we called them born-again Christians. And there were these mm-hmm. kids that had had a religious experience. And I always wanted to know what that felt like. 
and they couldn't really describe it as a rush or was this feeling of peace or serenity. How do you replicate that? And have either of you ever had that? And can it come not from a religious experience, but from out of a fastball in the outside corner, a great song, something? So where this book led me in the end, when I was trying to find that sense of meaning, and I one word I've always struggled with is spirituality, because I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so vague. It it's even yeah. like God these days. Yeah. God can mean all kinds totally. of things. Um, and I found this whole body of research that really helped me answer that question for myself. And it's um, at UC Berkeley, Dr. Keltner, who studies awe and the physiological experience that we have when we are in the presence of something great. And he did this really interesting experiment where he put half of his students in a hallway and half next to the giant replica of the dinosaur in the Natural History Building or something. And uh, he asked them to write um an answer to a question, who are you? And the ones in the hallway said, I'm a student, I'm a soccer player, you know, I'm a brother. And the ones in the, near the dinosaur wrote, I am part of the human race. Mm -hmm. I am part of the cosmos. They felt Mm -hmm. not just small in presence of that thing, but they felt like part of a system. Connected. And that is, they show again and again through his research and others that when we feel awe, we feel connected to a greater system. And that, to me, is what I came to understand as spirituality. And that's how I see it. And I I found one of his protégés at Arizona State University. And I said, you know, I can't go to the Grand Canyon every day or see a dinosaur. But I really feel overwhelmed um, sometimes when I'm with my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm putting my daughter to bed. And I'm looking at just like... Have you ever just looked at your kid's ear and you're like, where did that ear come from? That is so cool. And she said, well, that's awe. You're having an awe experience. And it's um, creating this physiological thing in your body um, that they've now shown um, helps time to slow down in our minds. It helps us to become more generous and compassionate. And to me, that's what secular spirituality really means and that we can open ourselves to that more in our lives. Maybe through, you know, as you mentioned, reading and art. It depends, or surfing. What is your thing Mm -hmm. that gets you to that experience? That's why people dig drugs and alcohol. Yeah, FYI. And I was just going to ask, so at the end of all this, and I do want to backtrack and talk about the process of actually getting the book written and published. Was And this may not have been your plan. This may not have been your end game. But at the end, did you arrive at any kind of peace? I did. I mean, I would say writing the book changed my life. Um, I live a more meaningful, connected life now than then. Um, I feel that I'm much more aware. It's a little hard to explain other than to say to wrestle with and immerse yourself in these questions for a long time and to know and meet people who are also wrestling with them is you get this feeling of communion, really, with others. Oh, yeah. You know, and this this feeling that you're not alone. And um, and I find now, you know, you're not supposed to talk about religion and polite company. It's all I talk with people about. Oh, my gosh. And I find you're not supposed to talk politics either. Yeah, well, they, these days they merge. Yeah. Yes, these days they merge. But I have found that sort of opening myself to not knowing everything has mm. instead of shunting my kids off and telling them I don't know answers to their questions 
but just saying, you know, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's wrestle with that has become sort of a way of life for me, I suppose. And and knowing that there are these other options out there. I, I loved learning about secular humanism and secular Buddhism. And, you know, I, I have pieces of that in my life now. And when you started, did you set out to find ways to replace these things that religion would give you? And were you successful? So the, it's funny. The first thing I did when I was writing the magazine article was I looked up, you know, raising kids without religion. And I was in Boston. And one of the first things that popped up was secular Sunday school. And it was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Like, it's not just the religious kids that have to have their, yeah. their weekends, yeah. really. <laughs> uh, but it was the first, my first inkling that, oh, there are these people who are already out there organizing yeah. around this and doing this. And then I found a great book by Alain de Baton called uh, Religion for Atheists. And that was another sort of moment where I was like, oh, I'm not the only one wrestling with this. People miss some things about religion and we're having a hard time replacing them. In I think that's age. why yoga is so compelling for so many people. But it's it, ritual. It's But it is really interesting that they would try to pretty word for word replicate the experience know, of being religious without the, the God. sucky part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sunday school sucks. Yeah. yeah. Kid. Try being Jewish. It's Saturday school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, these all, all these things have a little bit of an artificial feel to them. If you think about how long religions have been around and all of a sudden we're going to start to create something new... I feel like we're in a stage where they all feel a little clunky and weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually they will evolve to feel more natural. But right now, and I think that's why maybe yoga and meditation feel more natural because they're rooted in, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism. They have a little bit of that Eastern mm-hmm. religious root. Mm-hmm. But the things that we're coming up with from scratch right. feel a little silly sometimes. Time does yeah. need to pass in order to iron things out. Well, I asked uh, Bob Putnam about that. He wrote Bowling Alone, Mm -hmm. and I interviewed him uh, for for the article in the book. And I said, are the secular humanist communities going to be the answer for people like me who are now nuns? And he said, we won't know for 300 years. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So I really wish they'd come up with a different word than nuns. It does sound yeah. weird. I, it's funny because I didn't notice that when I, I read nuns, yeah. but when you said it out loud. And someone has suggested nons. Nons. Oh, nons. I, I like too, nons I just better. a little split second freak. Like, wait, she's a nun? That <laughs> <laughs> um, can't be right yeah. because she has three children. There's something I'm curious about. So. Long, successful career as a journalist. First book. Had you thought of books before? I had thought of books before, and I just had. In fact, I have a book that I kind of put on the back burner mm. to write this okay. one. Um, I, it just never quite came together. And I don't know if you guys have had this experience where your friends are always like, "Where's your book? Where's your book?" I'm like, it's hard to write a book, you know, yeah. and you it's even harder to get it published. Yeah, and this yeah. this idea it was kind of like a it was a perfect storm in a way because the magazine article came out right when the Pew Foundation. Re- release their statistics. Mm -hmm. So it was rare for me as a magazine writer to get requests for for radio interviews. And I was getting lots of those and, you know, visiting these groups. And so I realized the the magazine article could be expanded to a book at that point. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which answers my next question because I thought, was this a hard sell? You know, it could be a very dry topic, but apparently you hit the zeitgeist. Yeah, I think it was um, It was the right time. There, were, uh, there was a lot of talk. I mean, this was in around 2012, right after the article came out. And uh, 
everyone was talking about the nuns. It was the, on the radio, and it, it, we're still talking. It, sorry, the nuns. We're still talking. <laughs> we're going to change it. this right <laughs> now. Yeah. Not an Eric Idle nuns on the run type of thing. But it's a, almost a little bit of. Uh, it's out there now, and so maybe we it's can't. Old we news can't change it ourselves. Yeah, oh, it's too late. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Carry on. But here's the thing about the word nuns is part of the problem with it, and I talked to people in the in the book is that we always describe you know behavior and lifestyles that aren't religious as a, a an without lacking. an absence. Yeah, lacking. And so none is, is a perfect example of that. And We're I, null set. We're empty. Yeah. And I think in time, mm-hmm. um, people are already starting to pick apart the people in that big clump. You know, who are they? Because there's so much variation in that group. I mean, right. there's atheists on one side. There's people who worship crystals on the other. Right, right, you right. You know, right, and everything right. in between. Right. And so I think the next wave will be to really look at those different parts of the nuns and maybe we'll just start dicing that up and calling those different things. So it took you five years to write this, well, to write, to get it published. It took, yeah, and it took about three years, roughly, of research and writing. And during that time, you went everywhere and talked to everyone. And went to a lot of communities. I tried to. Religious communities. Yeah. What kind of pressures did that put on your family? So I would often try to go when we were like on vacation. Oh, I nice would, vacation! Yeah, or if we, well, if we were, so we, we go did, visit this monastery while you guys yeah, are at Disneyland. Yeah, exactly. My husband would drop me off at a professor's office, <laughs> and um, yeah, I would try to do that as much as I could. And then I would travel. I would take just like red eyes. I mean, I was going. I was trying to do it as streamlined as possible mm-hmm. because we have three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband's job is very time consuming. At one point. Our middle child said to me with big wide eyes from her bed as I was coming to Tucker after a long flight, um, maybe you'll finish your book faster if you stop going to so many places. <laughs> Which <laughs> is what she, Laura she was, was telling right. you, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so once I heard Ooh, a metaphor. And now's the babes, yes. yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think, it, I think with the first book, there is that anxiety of I've got to cover it all. Mm-hmm. I've got it. And with this topic, I was especially worried of having big gaps and people saying, "What about this?" Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or she totally misread the Christian doctrine on the blah blah blah. And at some point, I had to realize, well, I'm not a theologian, so maybe right. I did, but I'm going to tell my story. Actually, I'd love to talk about that a little bit because um, in my other life, I'm an art historian, yeah. and one of my experiences in teaching art history was, especially when I first started was realizing I would have to explain to undergraduates not that the church was cross-shaped, but why it was cross-shaped. They would have no idea. Religious religious literacy. Yeah, religious literacy. And just, I mean, if you're teaching Renaissance art and you have to start every single conversation with, this is Mary, this is why it looks Mm -hmm. like this, this is, I mean, you really have to break everything down. There's no reason not to, but it, there used to be an assumption, mm-hmm. and that you cannot have that assumption well, anymore. Absolutely I mean, not. What are your thoughts about religious literacy and, yeah. and, and the idea of knowing these stories as part of just living in this world, whether you're yeah. religious or not? Yeah. So I think it's a problem, and I there is, there are some statistics. They're not um, there's not a lot of research on this, but there are some that show that we are becoming less religiously literate, which makes sense if we're l- l- fewer of us Hugely. are going to church. Um, so I, there, I open our chat, the chapter on religious illiteracy with my daughter and I were at the youngest, um, at a garden store and she found a statue of an angel 
kneeling in the ivy with her her hands clasped before her chest. And my daughter yells at me from across the lot, Mama, that girl is doing yoga. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yeah, I failed. I've really failed here. My child doesn't even know what an angel is. Probably worked better in Boston than it would have in Arkansas. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, But, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, worry about that. And how do you appreciate great works of art and literature if you don't have just the basics mm-hmm. of of uh, working knowledge. And, you know, the problem is that schools are afraid to ta- teach exactly. religion either right, as a right. cultural study because mm-hmm. they can get in a lot of trouble if they cross the line. And it's it also looks- upsetting to people. Mm-hmm. It upsets people if you start to teach mm-hmm. because – because so much of religion is wrapped up in politics, not just in the United States, though it is mm-hmm. completely here, but internationally, mm-hmm. that it, it seems very dangerous. Yeah. But it always has been wrapped up in politics, and yeah. it's only recently that we decided it was dangerous, mm-hmm. or we interpret it as dangerous. Well, because we're also talking about teaching more than just Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, that's when the problems arise. Well, it's Christianity, too. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people have been either hurt by churches, mm-hmm. Christian churches, or feel politically hurt mm-hmm. by Christian churches, and I'm sure have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't want their kids to be taught the mm-hmm. Bible. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a I think it's a big problem. And yet there are schools um, where they have done it. There's one here in California where they teach religion as a cultural study, and they've studied that school and shown that people um, become more aware of other cultures, and they also have a greater understanding of separation of church and state, right. and that you can teach it in a way that it would actually raise us all up. It's like teaching sex ed. Yeah. The mystery makes it much more dangerous mm-hmm. than... Yeah. Mm. I I can see your furrowed brow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what sucks classes. about being bald. They can always tell what your eyebrows are doing. <laughs> but I think it, I do think it's true. I mean, I taught well, I taught religious classes for years in a secular as literature, um, and you know, I mean, their kids are shocked to hear that was in the New Testament, not right. the things that I've been told by televangelists on yeah. television, or yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it's important. It's mm-hmm. and it's empowering. I think that's what I think. Well, and I I think there's a because the the religious right has so dominated the airwaves. I think that right. most people when they hear the word Christian, they think religious right. Exactly. And so I, I interviewed one professor who said, all my millennial students, they think that is the entirety of Christianity, right. and they don't want to hear a word. And they're about the enemy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's really, yeah, it's creating even more div- division, mm-hmm. the lack of knowledge. Well, let's move away from that and talk about the things that you found. Something that stuck with me when we were talking earlier was you had said, and it was just an offhanded comment, that your neighborhood had become your religion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you expand on that a little bit? So I think maybe religious community is a better way to say it. So okay. when, I, when I started the book, we were living in Boston, and um, we since moved to Chicago, and we live in a neighborhood dominated by the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. And it's not just that the university is there as an institution. There's a lot of religious institutions, too. Hyde Park has this long history of political activism, of very sort of liberal politics. And it feels much more like a neighborhood community than where we were in Boston, where we were somewhat fragmented and not really Mm -hmm. connected. And so in some ways, I feel like I live in this place. And I literally live a block away from like Church Row. There's every church you can imagine. And there's a Quaker meeting house. And there's the um, synagogue and the Mormon uh, church up the street. And yet, 
there's this underlying um, secular humanism about the community where everyone sort of we have very different beliefs, a lot of atheists there, but we have shared values. And that Mm. to me is, I think, what I was searching for. And so in some ways, you know, part of it was the book and part of it maybe was moving to this community. But uh, that makes me think just while you were talking Mm. of Chicago yeah. And what I've read, you know, things I've read set in Chicago or about Chicago or how it used to be may not be this, this way now, but how the neighborhoods were united by their parishes. Mm. And it seems similar, except in addition to shared values, there were shared experiences. They, all, they were all in the same place on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, there were these priests and that they revered. Now everyone's at the farmer's market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that the, the main place? Church. Maybe. Well, there are, these civi- <laughs> there are these civic ways of getting people together. So we have the Hyde Park Art Fair and we have the mm-hmm. book festival. And there are these ways that bring everyone out, you know, and, and the university has events. So if you have a community that's really good at those civic events, you mm-hmm. can feel that can belonging. Mm-hmm. No matter who you're talking do to, do the kids go to the same schools? They do. Yeah, they, do. they all go to the same school, and it's. I all. do think schools, in some ways, are replacing mm-hmm. religious institutions for families in terms of tradition. And mm-hmm. I mean, at least in San Francisco, where so many kids go to private schools, each private school has kind of their own culture. Right. They have their own winter fair. Well, they have I can their speak own... of that in kind of a yeah. skewed way. Yeah, because my religion kid went to a Jewish day school, mm-hmm. which definitely and, and the head of school. I was almost at the rabbi. He wasn't a rabbi, but the head of school told us uh, when we first got in, we had the big dinner, you know, and he said for a lot of people, this becomes their temple. And that's why I asked about unaffiliated, because he said over the half half of the people here are unaffiliated, which meant we didn't belong to a temple. But my question is, what happens when the kids graduate? Right. Because then with religion, you've got it throughout your life and you're passing it on to your baby and your grandmother. That's interesting because my kids uh, went to Waldorf school. And Waldorf has a little bit of its own culture. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed with uh, former students who are now in their late 20s, some of them are having children, they are passing it on a little Mm -hmm. bit, like a kind of cultural worldview. It's not to say that they're believers in all Mm -hmm. of it, but um, there are pieces Mm -hmm. that do feel like religion or maybe just like a cultural tradition that still defines them or they're still aware of Mm -hmm. and that are part of their new families. And that's really fascinated me. And it is similar in a a Jewish day school, and I'm sure it's the same in the Catholic school too, where it's not the same community going on throughout their lives, but they can always identify the people who had a similar experience. Maybe that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. The other Jewish day school kids or the other Catholic school Mm -hmm. kids. But you're right. It's not the same because... It's not a continuous uh, enmeshed community. So the weird thing about where we live is the university dominates. And so people go to that school. They've got a pre-K through senior year. But don't you think your kids will always identify with having been kids that are part of that community? And there are kids that went there in the 60s and kids Mm -hmm. that will go there in the 2030s. And they will all have this Mm -hmm. something of an identity they share. Yes, I think that's where the connection comes. But. What I guess what I'm saying is we're leaving behind these institutions, the religious ones. I feel lucky that we have a secular yep. institution to attach yep. to because I felt lost without that when mm-hmm. we were in Boston. Yeah, I agree, especially once you have kids. <clears throat> but again, to what you just said, your husband could be working at UCLA in three years. Yeah, and then I don't think he will. But, <laughs> <laughs> but right, let me add this. This is another layer. He grew up there. And his okay. father taught there, and his grandmother taught oh, there. Oh my God! We have, it's our religion, people. It's the like, great books are your religion. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's uh, it's there's a long history at the University of Chicago that feels, and I'm not even a part of the place, but and you know, I'm really like 
in the buildings other than maybe the library. But I just feel like, oh, we kind of belong here. So that's, yeah. a, that's a customized yeah. community for you. You yeah. know what I would compare that to uh, in <clears throat> maybe not as positive a way because they were mad the whole time. But my sister's husband was Air Force for oh, 20 yes. years. And it took them a while when he got out. Of course, they wanted to get out badly. But once they got to but the outside, yeah. she really misses that. All these people with yeah. the shared experience, and they spoke in acronyms. Yeah. So they spoke a little lang- their own language, yeah. you know, really yeah. the, the, the basic definition of a culture. Well, and I will add, because we've talked about yoga a bunch, I've been doing yoga for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I can go to any city in this country and plop down a yoga mat and feel at home in some right. way. And right. so there are these ways where we're kind of like – you know, fluttering around and then we land in places and we take whatever we've got mm-hmm. with us. It's like we carry it on mm-hmm. our backs. Like a little yoga mat. Parachute in. <laughs> yeah. um, Crossfitters do that. You know, that's like a big thing that you go to different boxes and you buy the shirt oh. where the, at the box that you go to right. and you wear it back at yours and they're part, they see themselves as part of a nationwide community yeah. or international community. So there, Harvard Divinity School, there's a group there that studies Soul Cycle, CrossFit, all really? these groups oh, that's as so interesting. the new religion, the new religious experience. Oh, my gosh. I yes. love that. So. Definitely a difference between religion and religious experience. Right. Yes. Yes. I think so. That's why I keep coming back to surfing, which I guess is like Soul Cycle right. in that way, that there's something. And you said that about the, the, the feeling of awe. I think that's why surfing came to my mind first, that when you read people writing about surfing or people who are really passionate about it, they feel something bigger than themselves mm-hmm. or something. And maybe people doing soul cycle too, I don't know. And people doing yoga, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Is there I mean, does yoga give you that sense of ritual? That's why I like it. Yeah. I think it's like, okay, all the chaos is gonna come down to these like poses, this mm-hmm. series of poses that have and been you know around what they're gonna be forever. Right. They've been around for so long. Right. And so I'm sort of connected to that. And um and it's a physical there's all this really interesting research on ritual and how our mm-hmm. physical sort of movements shape even what how we're thinking and how we're experiencing um the day. And so to go through those physical rituals as a way of Taming the mind, I think, is really beneficial for me, anyway. BQ, do you think you got those rituals from church? It's not a physical ritual, but sitting there reciting the same thing at the same time. Oh, no question. I, I also think a lot of my early interest in art came from sitting in churches and staring at windows and staring at capitals and staring at sculptures. And being really bored, which I actually think is really good for kids. Yes. Um, and that that led to my adult feeling. Of, that's where in my adolescence I put my belief in music, in art, in literature. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it was just one step away from the church I'd grown up in, I think. And I would just add that to, to have children in a place where they have to sit still, mm-hmm. to have all of us in a place where we have to sit yeah. still, Can't we check don't your really phone. do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people do even check their phones at church now. But, yeah, um, I'm sure they do, yeah. But that we've lost that. And that, so we took our kids the one time they've ever been inside a religious institution. We went yeah. to a family member's wedding, mm-hmm. and they were miserable. They were hot and they were like moving around and all, like all my Arkansas relatives were there and I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with themselves. Right. They didn't know how to be in that space of quiet and stillness. So that raises an interesting point. Um, your efforts to give them, the, I guess, the good parts of religion without right, the God right. part, 
at some point they are going to be in a church yeah. or a temple right. or a mosque or somewhere. Right. How, how prepared do you think they are to be able to yeah. sit there with an open mind? Yeah. Uh, or just even endure it. Right. Well, I think very open-minded now that I've written this book and we talk about this stuff all mm-hmm. the time. Um, you know, I hope they can en- endure it. They do like to sit and read, <laughs> so maybe that's mm-hmm. practice. They can go to a library with the best of them. They can go to a bookstore and <laughs> sit and just read for an hour. Um, but my daughter, who's seven, was in. she was in first grade this year, and she came home one day and she said, there's a really mean boy in class, and he made fun of someone for being religious. Well, that's nice. And I was like, good. I'm glad that my doing this you know, study has not um, gotten her. I don't want her to be fundamentalist on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, I want her to understand that everyone finds meaning in their own way. And as mm-hmm. long as it's not intruding on your way, um, mm-hmm. live and let live. So I do think my kids are. They, and and my my daughter who's eleven says of herself, um, I'm part Jewish, part Christian, and part gymnast. <laughs> part gymnast. Um, so the book came out a year ago, and I'm curious. And we're starting to wind down on yeah. time. Um, the book tour, going into readings, yeah. and, and I'm sure you've been to other readings. How were yours different? So I go to so many different types of places. Right. Um, the humanists and the atheists kind of love, you know, when they I come. Love you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've gone to some churches, and it's not always as easy. There's a little bit of a, wow, she's bringing the bad news, which mm-hmm. there's a lot of bad news in, in here for churches, right? And um, But they have to be aware of it, most churches. Yeah. If you go to church now, you're going to see a lot of empty pews and a lot right. of older people. Exactly. And I would hope that, and I wa- have wanted the discussion to have been, well, what can we do or mm-hmm. what should we be thinking about? Mm-hmm. But that's not always happening. And that's a, I find that a little frustrating because it's a great opportunity. I, I feel like talking across these divisions is crucial. And Absolutely. so that's why what I hope happens, it doesn't always happen. Do you ever have trouble with the humanists and the atheists that you're not um, virulent enough, angry enough? Yeah. And I had someone the other day say that he couldn't believe I used the word spiritual. And I thought, well, that's very fundamentalist. Yeah, they can <laughs> have a lot of rules. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was, I, I saw, I think it was Christopher Hitchens and um, I don't remember who, he, what his name is, but he's the former dean of Grace Cathedral mm-hmm. in San Francisco. They had a kind of debate and the the Episcopalian priest seemed far less impassioned and far mm. le- had far less at stake, it yes. felt like. He just seemed less fundamentalist. Right. He was less fundamentalist. So I've come to realize that if we peeled away all those labels that we give ourselves, you'll find the commonalities underneath them with some people mm-hmm. and not with others. Yeah. And it really often has nothing to do with what they call themselves. Yeah, that's you know? wise. So sometimes it's, I get along great with like this uh, Episcopalian minister that I interviewed. I felt like I had more in common with him than this guy the other day who told me I shouldn't use the word right. spiritual. And you probably did. Yeah. yeah. So. And now the book's out in paperback. Yes. And sales, I'm assuming, were good? They've been good. They've been sort of, I don't know. I don't know how to describe whether they've been good or not, but um, <laughs> I don't know because it's a mystery, right? Yes, it's so it's confusing. Very, the publishing industry is very mysterious. I think that's something me. really worth talking about. It is yes. so opaque. Yeah, but I've gotten a lot of. I've done a ton of events. I've written a lot of pieces, and it's I, in paperback. Yeah. That's a sign right there. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, and I feel like it's the book that yeah. the gift that sign. keeps on giving because the topic is not going to get right, right, which is great. And so. speaking of that. Um, 
you know, what do you do for a follow-up? Is this now something you're going to continue exploring through your work, or are you going to move on to something different? So I'm going to keep this as sort of a, a project. I'm always there for, to give talks, and, and I really enjoy giving talks because it really gets people to think about how am I living a meaningful, connected life. Um, my favorite parts of writing the book were the memoir pieces, mm. and so I'm actually working on some memoir oh. excerpts and possibly a, an actual memoir now. So exciting. Tricky. Yeah. We've both written unpublished memoirs. Oh. That doesn't mean yours will be. Yeah. Not about religion. Oh, wait. Mine was about religion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> mine had Maybe a lot of religion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can't avoid it. Uh, as I've said, you can yeah. run, but you can't hide. <laughs> Uh, we are about at the end of our hour, as we can tell, as we're all beginning to sweat a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's getting. How are you holding up over there, I'm Catherine? Good. I, I took okay. off my sweater. I, know you. I, I, I just put robed, her hair up. So I would say she is the most prepared. <laughs> I was going to say, yep. Guest, without knowing it, without doing it on purpose. But <laughs> as we close, Catherine, why don't you tell <clears throat> people where they can get hold of you? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm um, CatherineOsment.com, K A T H E R I N E O Z M E N T. And check out my website. I have a book club kit that people might enjoy and I have a listing of events and articles I've written and somewhat active on social media find me on Twitter and uh, that would be great what's your Twitter handle I'm at Catherine Osmond oh see see if you're you're, smart you got a you got a unique name yes you don't have to Larry and I have we have problems well no one can spell my name so that's often a problem the K yeah oh Osmond Osmond. oh really it's a weird name oh but they think it's Osmond like Donnie and Marie oh Donnie Osmond I was like Osmond it sounds exactly like it is Osmond of course from my Jew centric point of view I was like is that her husband's last name or her last name it sounds not his last it's name. It's not. yours. Yeah. His would be easier. But. Yeah, it would. BQ, where can they find you? They can find me at BQuinterest because Bridget Quinn was taken in all of its iterations. BQuinterest on Instagram and Twitter and at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. You can find me at that Larry Rosen because there's many other Larry Rosens <laughs> who are far more so, accomplished than me. There are so many Larry Rosen's. There's the one who I think is kind of an alter ego, like what I would be if I didn't shave my head. He's got the total middle-aged Jewish guy fringe Uh and the beard (laughs) and the whole thing. Looks very happy, though. Is Uh, he a writer? uh, I think he does write some stuff, but he's more like a lawyer. There's a Larry Rosen writer. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Not you. This one, however, can be found at that Larry Rosen on both Twitter and Instagram. I just started a little Instagram thanks to my son. I would expect to see a lot of dog pics. Uh, there's a, well, there were a lot of kid corgi. pics this week, but there might be corgi pictures okay. next week. Uh, again, if this religious conversation has you thinking about religion, in particular Judaism, <laughs> go to Is It Good for the Jews? And listen to my other podcasts. Uh, Grotto Pod produced by? It is produced by Beth Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, and Lori Ann Doyle. And you guys... Would you please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and talk to us? We would so love that. Do it, do it, do it. Yeah, you can actually email us at grottopot at gmail.com. That wraps it up for us today here in the Grotto Pod. BQ, how about taking us home? All right. I'd like to say that we should read, write, and just keep working. And I really deeply believe that. I would say I believe it with religious fervor. (laughs) All right. (laughs) 